Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hello, you look amazing. I hope you're having an amazing day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So absolute no-brainer to hit that subscribe button. I am here with Nancy Halpern. She's a New York-based consultant. She's the founder of Political IQ, which is an organization that really helps find the business impact on uh, the, big, the business impact of workplace culture. You're a thought leader. You're a podcast host. You do all kinds of stuff, Nancy. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. So happy to have you on. I'm pretty tickled to be here. Thank you so much, Nick, for asking me. So um, we were talking a little, a little bit before the show, and I'd love to just kind of jump in, in into that. You had a super viral post from this uh, article you shared about, is it the age of the worker? Tell us about that article, first of all, kind of what made you share it, and then we can dive into how that question kind of cross, crosses over this great resignation and this new sort of era of workplace that I think your work can speak directly to in an interesting way. Well, I've been interested in this topic for probably a long time, but it was clear that COVID was a real, or I should say lockdown, was a real accelerator on some trends that had been building in the workplace for a long time. One of them was clearly the rise of the gig economy, where mm -hmm. people cut their apron, apron strings or umbilical cord to this notion of my company's going to take care of me. Uh, companies don't take care of you necessarily. Right. Um, and so, you know, I'm kind of a skeptical cynic optimistic person wow. but a lot of flavors of, in there yeah i really <laughs> sh shorthand version nick is i'm a sunny pessimist is the truth right yeah. like i'll convince things are going to go wrong but hey you never know um <laughs> I, I i i think that i'm also a little bit of a rebel so this idea that power was being challenged from the bottom of the hierarchy was really interesting to me and working remotely and working from home and the amplification of social media and the voice of Gen Z, you know, all these things were sort of coming together uh, to, I think, challenge organizations. Yeah. So there was this article in the New York Times about that. And I think I've gotten, what, in 24 hours, like 70,000 views and wow. Uh, like 700 comments and people are fighting in the comments. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's kind of fun to watch. Actually, after this, I have to go like, thank like 70 people or 700 people, whoever they are for even commenting on it. So it's like it's, shaking up it, an ant farm sometimes on LinkedIn, isn't it? Yeah. You don't know what's going to crawl out underneath <laughs> those ants. For real. So, so the, the, what is it that folks are kind of fighting about in the comments? Is it a different sort of view of the world or is it sort of rooted in their own sort of uh, anxiety about these new generations coming into their workplaces? Like what would you distill down these, these points of conflict to? That's so interesting. Cause I'm also of course a political junkie, especially on office politics. Mm -hmm. Some people are saying, you know, I've been looking for a job for two years and I can't find anything. So I don't think employees have so much power. Mm. You know, other people are saying those spoiled brat Gen Z and millennials, they could get jobs if they wanted to. They're just collecting unemployment. So there's, you know, some kind of chest beating that I think reflects the greater zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. I think other people are weighing in saying, well, you may think you're powerful now, you know, individual employee, but AI is going to replace all of you. In fact, some guy posted a photo 
of a of like a kind of Starbucks coffee machine mm. in an airport that totally replaced a barista. And he's like, see, you won't even have to ask anyone for your cup of coffee anymore. So employees like pound your chest now, but it's not lasting. And then there are other people who say, you know, this is a long time coming. Mm -hmm. You have many organizations that are run by older white guys and there's a lot of pushing, you know, on that floor to break that ceiling, be it for people of color, women, LGBTQ. So it's, it's overdue. So there's a real diversity that I think reflects a lot of the um, divided opinion right now in our country about so many things. Yeah, there's probably no kind of clear answer. And it's probably a mix of all those things. And at some level, maybe they're all right at some level or, or at whatever. some level. Yeah, at some level, you know, I guess everybody, even a broken clock, they say is right twice a day. But I, 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 I'm always curious when there's this much heat and energy. Right around something. And I do think there's this huge tension between people who are saying, I don't need a reason to go back to the office. I need a reason to leave home. Mm. And I've proven to you, employer, that I can get the job done if you measure me by output. So what's all this FaceTime nonsense in a, in a way, you know, that I have to be visible. And then, of course, on management's point of view, it's like, hey, we're locked into this real estate for offices, small or large. I don't know how to manage people I can't see. Right. Or track. And I don't know what I'm giving up. And so I think you have a real tension. And I, I, I think over time, time will resolve that. You know, but right now, I think there's a lot of heat on both sides of the question. Yeah, there are. And uh, in our business, I feel so mixed on it because I have some teams where, yeah, yeah I'm, I have some teams where them being remote, they haven't missed a beat and everything's good good to go. And some of these other teams where things are moving faster and, you know, it might be my own style or it might just be the nature of our work where it seems like we have to be around each other to really be performing to the same level that we used to. So, um I don't know. It's just to your point. It's like a, it's this new normal. Not to like you know uh, chew on a cliche too much, but it is kind of a new normal that everybody's sort of adjusting to. And we have these new generations coming in. We have this new sort of um, you know like labor mobility is at an all time high, even more so than it was five years ago. Do you know what I'm saying? With Zoom, for example. Yep. I mean, there there are people on our team that I've never met face to face, and they've been around for a long time. So again, right. five years ago, I I would have probably even though I am a millennial and of these sort of newer generations, I would have probably never guessed that I'd be in this situation. You know what I'm saying? Well, you're already an antique. Well, you know, hey, I just, take it easy now. Well, no, I'm saying that from like a dinosaur, okay? I so get it. I know what antique that. means. <laughs> yeah, no, well, you know what dinosaur means, right? No, I was just writing about this in my newsletter today about you know the push that Gen Z is making um, against certainly Gen X, poor Gen X, but totally. also against against millennials. And when you were talking about some of your teams work really well remotely and others don't, I think you have, it's, it's, it isn't, it's so much more complex, Nick, totally. than just let's schedule hybrid, right? It's the individual personalities. Mm -hmm. It's the nature of the function. Yep. It's the pace of the industry. It's pace of growth. You know, it's growth, it's working style, totally. it's 
need for connection. And there's also, I That's heard a big some, one. yeah, I heard some really cool futurists uh, during much earlier when we were in real lockdown, talk about heads down versus heads up work. Mm. So a lot of these postings are really by people who do head down work, meaning on your laptop, right? Your heads down versus people we consider them what frontline or bricks and mortar retail or first responders who are heads up work. Interesting. And I think some of the heat on my posting, and you know, I was just reposting an article. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, um, is really a class conflict oh. as well, a socioeconomic class conflict between. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Between those who can stay home, either because they have the physical space that allows them to stay home, and they have a heads down job, versus those who cannot stay home either because their home environment is really not conducive to work and or they have a kind of job where they physically have to be there and typically lower paying jobs frankly i mean i have a client they cannot get staff in their warehouse which is going to hugely impact christmas sales for them but nobody wants to work in a in a warehouse in indiana at such and such an hour now i don't know where those people are going to instead. But I do think there's a whole class issue here that we're not really talking about. That may be the biggest issue. It's like the silent fight, the silent tension that to your point is right below the surface that us, a lot of these heads down folks who have a nice apartment that they can work in that, you know, we all hate being isolated and there's a bunch of sort of negative externalities, mental health things that can come along with that. But to your point, kind of hard to sympathize with somebody who's really thinking, well, should I, should I, you know, uh, risk all this stuff to go and make what I can make sitting at home, uh, collecting unemployment, for example, if in fact that is what the, the decision set is like, you can maybe sort of intellectually empathize with it, but it's hard to really put yourself in those shoes and really frankly, to like throw stones until you've walked, walked a mile in those shoes. You know what I'm saying? Sure, and especially in large cities where you had lots of people of means who are commuting. Great point. And what they're saying is, I don't really want that commute. I, a large part of the pushback, I think, has been about the commute, Great right? Point. Not about being in the office. Uh, I thought early on, I wrote a newsletter, it's probably one of my most popular ones ever, about the cranberry problem of returning to the office. And it was basically about the elevators. How, if you can only have four people in an elevator and you're in midtown Manhattan, possibly get people back to the office in any kind of reasonable workflow? Totally. Uh, and, and you can't crack it because it's a constraint. So, I, you know, we keep talking about this as if it were some kind of mass return, but it isn't a mass return. It's all these pockets of individuation totally. and difference. And as a small business owner, you know, I think small business owners have to, they have in some ways, you know, more restraints because they usually have cash flow restraints, but they also mm -hmm. have more flexibility. You're a huge corporation where you have to scale every solution. That's, I mean, I, I, I'd hate to be working in that kind of environment charged with having to figure all this out. Yeah. And, you know, you, you said something pretty smart. You said a lot of smart things so far. Hey, thanks. Uh, <laughs> but you said something pretty smart. It's not like, well, just do this. It's this, like, 
confluence of all these individual decisions and all these individual marginal trade-offs that people are assessing and picking one way or the other or you know it's a it's a lot messier like from a distance it can seem oh, like very, like a monolith to your really, point but it's really a thousand little you know million little decisions that are uh you know it's like a uh, the birds are starting starting to fly south, and I saw this massive, I don't know what they're called, but just a huge, like, flock of birds. And it's all kind of moving together, but they're each yeah. one kind of reading the people around, you know, the, the people, the birds around them, and, like, at some, <laughs> at, you know, at some level, it's sta- it almost looks like a like a big horde or something, but it's a bunch of little birds making their own little decisions, you know what and, I mean? And the other thing that's interesting in that flock, of course, is there's always a sequence. There's always yeah, someone in right. the lead. Right, right, there, right, right. Exactly. And so nature by itself off of sorts into hierarchy it just Mm -hmm. does right but right now that's a really unpopular idea and that's something i see gen z really pushing up against because they want more power and i think for lots of good reasons right between me too and george floyd and again the sort of amplification of voice would you look at your geese i mean if they were geese whatever Mm -hmm. they were yeah and they have self-regulated into a form, into a structure that makes sense so they can move forward and make progress. Organizations are the same way. So right now, a lot of this stuff is really slowing down organizations. It doesn't mean the things that are being talked about are not critically important. And I do worry about issues around equity in the sort of remote work, hybrid work, invisible workforce organization, but dismantling hierarchy I think is really probably not going to happen. Well, it's unnatural a, to, to some to some level. To is it some not? level, I think it is. But, you know, it sort of reminds me in a weird way. I was in Central Park today with my dog, and my dog lives to chase squirrels. I mean, that's basically that and a good bone. That's all she cares about. And some lady started to like scold me that it wasn't funny that my dog was chasing squirrels. And I looked at her like, they're animals. Yeah, do you I think mean, I trained they... this into my dog? Not right, I never, you know, <laughs> give me a break. She's a dog. Dogs right. chase squirrels. She was so horrified because Imagine she was that. Wa- Imagine that. She was watching the birds, you know, sort of like you were. But yeah, I mean, humans are animals. We try to not give in to all our base instincts. I don't know where we're straying now, and I'm probably guilty of it. But um, I just find all these issues trying to predict the future of work is impossible because in some ways... Money typically wins, but I am so rooting against people like Jamie Dimon, against people like Mark Zuckerberg. I am so rooting against them. You're, you're so rooting I, against the lizard people, it sounds like. I guess I am. <laughs> I didn't really call them. Are they called lizard people? I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. That. I'm kidding. Maybe uh, not. Maybe, they maybe should be not. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you're rooting against them. Why? Because it's just the uh, the sort of embodiment of just sort of myopic dollar over everything, money is the all almighty god of everything type of thing. Well, I like money. You know, I mean, we all really do like money. You know, even if it means just to pay our rent and have a little bit of security. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the arrogance in um, people being necessary fuel for the business model so in the facebook example right their business model is selling your data uh, to advertisers 
sort of with your knowledge, but not completely with your knowledge, totally. right? So tracking everything about you so they can feed that back in to sell you more stuff. So you are their product, mm -hmm. whether you want to be or not, right? And so that business model, and I think we've seen some of the ways it's, you know, unfortunately uh, been used. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't connect far-flung family and friends and do a lot of social good, but I don't like how it uh, utilizes people for mm -hmm. profit. Um, Jamie Dimon, just because I think he says asinine out of touch things, like insisting that you know they're really becoming more flexible at Citibank because now people don't have to work on Saturday anymore. The guy's a prince. Isn't he though? <laughs> I know. Like Mother Teresa, you're going to have to like knock off your pedestal for Jamie. Yeah. You know, or about how people who don't like the commute, oh, get over it. And I'm thinking, you know, get over it. Give me a break. Okay. Yeah, you... you were flown in from your helipad from your... Right, your God knows what in the Hamptons or Westchester or Barbados or something. So, I, I think there's a real disconnect when you're on top of something that large mm -hmm. for the human experience. Yeah, isn't that um, funny how quickly you can forget? Like at some point, he was a low-level guy grinding, working probably eighty hours a week in the investment bank. I, I don't know what the guy's background was, but it's that wasn't centuries ago. I mean, that was within his lifetime. It was probably within I don't know thirty years or something, forty years. <laughs> as nice as you maybe because i'm not in the ethics space but you know <laughs> my conviction is i mean my assumption i don't know he probably grew up with some means maybe not right but either way probably went to harvard i went to the b school and was set out to do nothing but make money now if that's his goal that's fine you know good for him i had a different goal you know mm -hmm. mine was always intellectual challenge but okay but there's just something about the increase of disconnection and arrogance in certain industries at the top and certainly banking and tech yeah. have been such deeply bro industries totally. i don't like the way women have been treated in those industries um and that's a big deal for me it's well. pretty sick actually especially with tech and I, I would kind of expect a little bit more from tech i think i don't know why um but it, yeah why your, i don't know because it's like newer or it's like west coast more or like the people that i know that live in silicon valley are very sort of forward-thinking progressive it's just like it's those businesses are based in areas that are kind of steeped in this more sort of egalitarian or altruistic, at least on the surface, um, kind of sensibilities. And yet and yet we have <laughs> what we're talking about is not like it's not the exception to the rule. You understand? It's like yeah, normal. But, yeah, but you're, everything you're saying, of course, um, in, in to put it into action. Yeah. often involves a sacrifice of something. And it's because a sacrifice of my own power or their own power or whoever at the top's power. It, it's like, well. Right. And money. Totally. And not chasing after uh, shareholder value this quarter. And um, actually values not being like a nice slogan on the wall. You know, somebody has to give something up. And usually people, you know, it's like why this expression about, oh, it's as easy as stealing candy from a baby is so stupid. You know, if you've ever tried to steal candy from a baby, like that baby's not letting go. Totally right. You know? Most people don't want to let go of what they have. And that's the resistance, I think, towards going back to the office is you gave me something. You didn't mean to give it to me. You had to give it to me. I've now proven for the most part that I can use it responsibly. I, though I do think, Nick, there really could be an increase in worker surveillance you know, things that are in your laptop. What do you think of that, right? Because that's sort of in your space. I, uh, it just grates against me. 
it really does. Like we were talking to um, a friend and she was talking about her business and she was talking about how she's kind of put these controls uh, on like laptops and she can see when people are clocked in and stuff. And like, I don't know, just in my, in my stomach, I was just like, Ooh, I just don't want to do that. But like, I get, obviously get the argument for it. Like I get the economic argument for it. I get the operational and management argument for it. I get the, the, the risk, like you hear about, you know, the gig economy is almost on like uh, steroids where you have people like take, having two kind of full-time jobs, like they have two <laughs> laptops up. So like, so there's a bunch of moral hazard potential yep. and it's probably happening, but it feels, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm so like against it. I don't know, I don't know if it's my personality or where I come from or where my family I comes could, from. I just like- I could totally understand. That's like 1984. It's totally, like Big Brother totally. watching you. On the other hand, I could certainly hear someone in some company cut a deal that goes like this okay, you want to work from home three days a week, every week. You don't want to spend the money on the commute or give up the time. Totally get it. Mm -hmm. But I have to be able to know what you're working on. So here's the deal. If you want that, then we have software in your office issued laptop that knows what you're logged into and what hours you're keeping. And that's the deal, you know, and, the problem with that is some companies are so afraid of talent flight, but there's, I think it's going to settle down. Yeah. I don't probably think will. it's all going to be this power of the employee. I mean, I hate to say it. I'm already looking for companies that are doing that sort of spyware and, and sort of tracking it just intellectually. Is this going to be a growing trend or not? If it is, maybe I should invest in it. Yeah, maybe you should. <clears throat> but I just think, you know, human beings are pretty smart and every time there's a system, there's always a way to game the system. And I mean, you can get a little software again, it, yeah, again, true. you can get a little software that moves your mouse that's every true. 10 minutes or something. So it looks like you're doing stuff. I, you know, well, I don't see, know. But that's probably what I should really invest in, right? <laughs> Not the tracking software, yeah. the anti, the tracking, the tracking, the -tracking anti tracking software. There software, we go. Right? That's where you're going to get the real bucks. They're the real Bitcoin maybe. Yeah. That's yeah. That's really clever. I like that. And you're right. There will be some people who will do that. Yeah, but it's always going to be a tail. It's not going to be everybody doing that. Probably the most most of the people will conform to it, and you know they'll take that trade off and they'll do that math at the margin and say, yeah, you know, it's probably worth it because I'm a conscientious person and I'm not trying to you know work two jobs at once. The overwhelming majority of people are not trying to have two laptops and two full time W two jobs. I don't think. I hope. I, I hey, if they can handle it and do the work, good maybe that's for why. Them. Maybe that's I mean, why employment's up. I don't know. I mean, but in a sense. I mean, this is my kind of utopia, right? Let's say, I mean, so I own a company. I mean, I don't, I own a small consulting firm, but I own a company. And one of my employees has two jobs. How much do I care? Well, if I'm paying full benefits and the other company is paying full benefits, is that person getting a free ride? Or is that person getting everything done that I need done? Well, that, that's a great question. So let's kind of, let's push into this kind of thought experiment. Let's push into this thought experiment a little bit more. So okay. it's a sales job and you have a quota of this person. They have a, a quota of $750,000 a year of sales in a okay. goal, a top end goal that only 2% of, of people can hit of a million dollars of sales per year. If right. that person can hit that in two hours of work per day, hit the million, do you really care if they work are working three or four other jobs? Yes, I do. Here's why I might care. Then that goal is too low. 
No, no, but I'm saying you have a big enough sample set to say, I've been doing this for a long enough time where a million dollars is a stretch goal and the the average person is only going to hit that one out of five years. And really, if they can hit the 750, I'm going to be happy paying them full time. But right. you have this other person, you know, or think about it on a on a sales development type of role where these people are supposed to be, you know, sending out emails and calls all day and you're hoping that they do, I don't know, 20 appointments a month. Well, if they can make 20 calls and get 20 appointments, I get it would be great if they could make 200 calls and make 200 appointments, but I'm saying on a relative basis from an expectations management perspective, if this person is knocking it out of the park with a marginal amount of effort, do you really on balance care or would you want to keep that that top performer even if it's only taking them 25% of their, their work day to you know, achieve I it? Think I can argue this out of all the sides of my mouth. Same here. Right? Yeah, because <laughs> on the one hand, if you're working two hours and of course, before I said you should measure people on output. So now I'm just going to contradict myself. If you're working two hours and I'm paying you for eight and it's out of my pocket, right? Something's going to feel wrong. Yeah, I know. Me. It just is, right? right? And I do mean it seriously. If you're achieving a stretch goal in two hours, it's just logical to me to say there's something wrong with that goal. Mm -hmm. Because a stretch goal should not be able to be achieved in two hours. Sort of by definition. By definition, right. otherwise there's really something wrong with the goal setting. Yeah. You know, if somebody is, if someone is, I mean, by definition, a full-time job means full-time in that you can only do it full-time. If it's, if it's possible to do it in much less, I would say, let's turn it back to the organization to rejigger job definition well, and to rejigger how we talk, how we hire people. The problem is a lot of companies tried to save all this money by hiring contractors so they wouldn't have to pay perks. And now you have people who probably do have multiple contract jobs and they're not servicing any client full time. So, you know, companies get greedy and then they get upset if individuals want to do the best they can for themselves. I have a kind of a theory. Um, What's your theory? Buckle up. Ready? Um, sure. So this is like a microeconomic theory that there's just a tremendous amount of dead weight loss in our organizations and organizations have just grown accustomed to this level of dead weight loss. And it can be sort of tied down to the level of engagement, employee engagement. So if employee engagement across the entire economy is at 70%, which is what a lot of different studies have shown, like people are putting forth 70% of their effort. That's kind of like a low C kind of an effort. And that's what folks have kind of grown to expect. It's like we're running, you know, it's like we're riding a bike that has 30% of the air out of, out of the tires. So, you know, maybe this goes back to what you're saying. Well, on a goal basis, our stretch goals are automatically sort of dampered or dampened by this, um, this historical experience that we've had over the past, you know, whatever, at least several decades as sort of, you know, MBAs have sort of ascended to uh, the top of organizations and so forth. Um, what, what we've come to expect from our workforce is naturally sort of, uh, you know, the natural headwinds of employee, of lower employee engagement have caused us to set goals that, to your point, we think are stretched that aren't actually stretch goals. So to the extent we can get that engagement higher and, you know, there's a thousand different things that could potentially lead to that and that could be like the main driver for outperformance or alpha generation from an investment perspective uh, between sort of like, like companies in the same industry – um, to the extent that we can start to affect that, all that's going to fall to the bottom line. But the real headwind that we're talking about here is an engagement thing. Well, I'm surprised to hear engagement is as high as 70%, frankly. I mean, a lot of my clients would be thrilled 
Um, and of course, it always depends how you measure engagement. It is. You know, I, and and I, to be clear, I'm not saying 70% of employees are highly engaged or engaged. I'm saying that you know, if there's such thing as 100% effort, people are putting forth 70% of their potential effort. I see. Um, I also don't think for the most part goals, stretch goals are set too low. Um, I think actually, no, I don't. Okay. I, I mean, I think usually what happens is stretch goals are set without consideration to the organizational impediments to achieving them. Mm. So for example, um, this you need a system upgrade in the organization to be able to track something or get data to help you focus sales. Mm -hmm. And that upgrade is number eight in the queue this year, right? Um, and it's never happened, right? It's not gonna happen till like third quarter, 2023, yep. you know? And, and so you are slowed down um, and therefore you have to really, you know, bust yourself and work additional hours because you can't obtain the information with the kind of speed or accuracy or really, or just ease you could. And that's just one example. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think organizations typically are good at looking at things cross-functionally to gauge impact and dependency. Right. Um, they'll give a classic example, you know, product development and sales can really be at each other's throats because the company needs products to sell. They need innovation. Sales is compensated, of course, by just hitting the number. You know, how they hit it will be overlooked as long as they hit the number in total. Not always, of course, but often. Mm -hmm. So why would they take a risk on a new product if they have a cash cow? And they may have a quota and therefore you can incentivize them to sell that new product at a higher rate but they're still going to maybe go to the cash cow, you know? So I think incentive systems play a lot into how people perform, how they trust their organizations. Again, I'm sorry if I'm going far. No, 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 this cash. is, I think incentives are probably the most important and like most overlooked, I don't know, martial art in business, if you want to call it that. Yeah, you know? it's, a great way to, it's a great thing to call it. Well, people don't want to muck with it. Because like, for example, you know, I've done a lot of coaching now over 22 years, I think in the field. And if you give me a sales lead, a VP of sales or executive VP of sales and say to me, you know, this person is really kind of a pain. They're difficult. They break glass. They're abrasive. And I said, uh-huh, what else? Well, they always make the quota. I said, so what is it you want them to do? We want them to behave differently, but still make the quota. So the salesperson, the head of sales, their response is, what's my incentive to change? You reward me based on the, the metric, on the number. Mm -hmm. So what? And they're right. They're absolutely right. They are uncoachable because there's no, no reason for them to change. Um, yeah. And so I always find that kind of you know weird that companies, you know, they're worried about liability, of course, but it's a waste of money. Right. It's like my wife wants me to do the dishes, but also she wants me to want to do the dishes. Yeah, like I'll do them, but you can't make me watch. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, we are, um, we as human beings, I think are, um, we're good at finding like a path of least resistance. And that means finding like efficiency in a system. So to your point, why would that sales lead who is abrasive or whatever be expending additional calories that are perhaps even contrary to how they're naturally wired to get exactly. compensation of zero when they're already yeah, sort of optimizing they're already winning the game in the terms of the rules that are in place, you know? Exactly. But see, I blame the company because the company wants to have their cake and eat it too. The company does not want a potential lawsuit from a hostile workplace or, or any kind of yeah. liability. So they want the person to change 
but they don't want to fire that person or get rid of that person or reprimand the person because the person delivers so much revenue to the company. Right. Right. It's pretty interesting. It's a pretty in interesting thing. It seems like we're starting to get into this sort of like workplace politics realm that you're an expert in. I want to dive deep. I can't deep. help it. Well, no, I mean, it's everything. It's like all of it. It's 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 how the different gears touch each other. You know, I mean, you can design a really cool, uh, you know, engine on a CAD system or something. But at the end of the day, you got to get some grease in that, you know, once it's built, um, right. the nature of that grease, whether it's clean or it's dirty or though the, the lubrication and the viscosity of it is going to have a determinant on how well that machine that regardless of what, you know, what is in theory, how that actually kind of runs. I want to dive deep into this because I'm super interested in it. Um, it seems, you know, it's my sort of operating, um, it's my operating assumption that the only sustainable competitive advantage in business is culture. Um, if it is in fact a, an advantage, I guess it can be. Um, and a culture is just this sort of sum total of behaviors and beliefs and values that are actually lived out within an organization, irrespective of what the organization sort of claims that it espouses. And I think, you know, workplace politics are kind of an anti-culture in, in some ways, especially when they have like a negative, you know, slant. From your standpoint, when does workplace politics start to like rear its, you know, ugly head in an organization in terms of size or in terms of like age? When do you, what are kind of the early warning signs that a culture can start to become infected, you know, relative to the, you know, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed goal that you know was behind the typing or the writing of the the words on the wall or the words on the on the you know mission page. You know what I mean? Well, it starts with how you define politics, and if you see it as bad or good, right? I don't necessarily see it as bad or good. I think that I mean my family is intensely political. You know, I mean we sit around the Thanksgiving table. There's all there's three of us who want the wing on the turkey. That turkey still only has two wings. You know, there's lobbying, there's influencing, there's negotiation, okay. there's power. You know, every organization, I don't care if it's chess club or high school cheerleading, there's politics because like your flock of geese, there are hierarchies, there are pecking okay. orders, okay. right? And what I figured out in business school, sorry, I'm one of those MBAs, is that, you know, politics comes from the Greek word for group decision-making. That's the original definition okay. of the word. That's all it means. And anytime you are competing for limited resources and resources are always limited, mm -hmm. then you have politics. Okay. And so then it's a question of what's the intention? So what are the early warning signs that an organization is dysfunctionally political? Yeah, okay. Is when politics are done for the intention of my betterment over yours. So politics has been confused with the word conquest. Which I did maybe in my sort of Preamble Every, to this question. Yeah, you, yeah. you and you and 90% of the world, you know, I mean, I'm in the, the screeching minority who's like, you know, story of your like, life, I think. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. As much the screeching as the minority, um, <laughs> you know, I, because it's just, you can just see it around totally. you. Who's popular? Who's cool? You know, who's a geek? Who's in that click? Who's getting the teacher's attention? Who's this? Who's that? You know, I mean, it's always there. Right. But if it's used for my own selfish means, then I would say that's dysfunctional for, for a business or a nonprofit or any organization. If you are reading the chessboard, if you are building alliances, 
if you are managing information flow to help yourself, that's okay, your team, your division, and the organization meet its objectives, then I'd call that strategic. I mean, I did do a workshop on this for a group of, it happened to be emerging female leaders at a, at a big biotech. And we were talking about all this and one of the women said, yeah, but mm, it sounds so manipulative. And I said, yeah, and when men do it, it's, it's called strategic. Right. You know, I mean, the root, of, the, root of the, word, the root of the word manipulative is manual, right? You manipulate clay. You use your hands when you manipulate something. Mm -hmm. It also means deceitful. So I was teaching again and, and doing some workshops around this for a very big tech company on the West Coast. And there was someone from, I think, Germany. And we were talking about those two definitions of manipulate. And he said, you know, it's really interesting. When I learned English, I never learned that other definition of it's something like you manipulate clay. Never learned it. So these definitions of what's political in an office, you know, we hate office politics or being manipulative are really, I think, restrictive misinterpretations of the term. So when you see somebody acting to hoard information, you see someone gossiping and it comes back to you about you, mm -hmm. you see people being promoted without merit, but through favoritism, you see teams not aligning around goals because people are protecting their functions versus having a broader enterprise view, be that across a team, a division, or organization. Those missing deliverables can't make the roadmap, clicks within the team itself, mm -hmm. little alliances of only two people here, people running to the manager to complain about someone else they work with. Those are all signs of dysfunctional politics. So my question earlier was like, well, when do you see that happen? And it's like, it probably happens at all sizes at all times. Like there's probably no like red flat, you know, remember that well, old Malcolm Gladwell book that said like, man, you know, the culture really changes at 125 people or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it hits that tipping point of size, but the way you described this kind of, I mean, that can happen in a company of five people. I mean, it can actually happen yeah. in a group of three people. There's always two people that are closer than, than, than the third. There's, it's like, we have a bias to like, for outsiderism or something. We do. I mean, you know, I'm not sure I buy that Malcolm's 125. Um, but it's interesting because I actually work with his company now and, and they are scaling up. So it's interesting to watch this kind of dynamics that happen. Just stopping at 125, like by hiring freeze. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's different kinds of politics. For example, I've worked with several companies that are founder led. Oh my God, those politics are insane. Oh, wow. In a bad way, like the, to your point. I think. It's yeah, like yeah. the worst family you've ever had. It's like working for your dad or your mom mm -hmm. and all your siblings. It's like succession, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really intense. On the other hand, if let's say you're in a huge company, then where are those chess pieces moving? Who's kissing up to the board? Mm -hmm. You know, who are they going to focus on someone who is um, a domain expert in the field or someone who, let's say, comes from operations or sales? And what are the ten you know, what are the tensions? So, you know, you can have but again, it's not always bad. No, totally. You know, no, because if you say to someone, what makes someone a skillful, not an evil, a skillful politician? Well, influence skills 
negotiation skills, right? Communication skills, Coali- coalition building. I mean, coalition building. A little bit of charm doesn't hurt. Right. None of those are evil necessarily. To your point, necessarily, it depends on intent, right? And usage. Yeah, and like focus of the you know to the extent these are weapons. Like, where's the focus of that weapon? Is it focused toward the good? And is that good actually good, or is it sort of a selfish aim yeah. for your own? Yeah, yeah, it's really a fascinating. You really picked a pretty fascinating uh, pool to swim in. I mean, this is pretty Thanks. cool. I can't say I can't say it's lucrative, but it definitely is fascinating. But you know, my team and I built a model. We got it validated. Cool. You know, I mean, we have twenty four variables you can test a culture against and it, sort the data by gender or generation wow. or function or geography to see, you know, how are these behaviors, how do they play out? But I I do think you can, the minute you strip people away from their assumptions and fear about language, you can open up their thinking. What do you mean by that? Well, if people decide that politics is bad, just they're done. Got it. Done. Done. Why would they want to learn to do something that's bad? Right. I don't want to learn to manipulate people. Oh, being strategic about people. Oh, that sounds okay. It's the same, thing, you know, totally. it's, it's yeah. a label. Yeah, there's a label and there's sort of almost an assumed intent behind a, you know, neutral word or something. Well, it, you know, ethics, right? People think being political, quote unquote, is highly unethical. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily at all. I mean, right. you know, do you say, do you, I mean, go back to the wash and the dishes, you know, I mean, you may not want to. But it's part of the obligation, and maybe it's a small price to pay for harmony and peace. Yeah, for not sleeping know? on the couch, right. Well, exactly. <laughs> and so what? You know, it doesn't become an ethical quandary. Totally. I don't really feel washing it. I don't, totally. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one with the dishes. I'm like, no, just wash the, just do you them. know, yeah, yeah. friggin' dishes, yeah. So that, uh, that 24-point model sounds pretty interesting. Was Tell me about some surprises that came out of that process of building that model with your team and getting it validated? Were there any things that really were like, oh my gosh, or was it really a confirmation of all these like intuitions and sort of thoughts that you've accumulated over your years of, you know, being in this game? I'd say there were two real surprises. One was I did a really deep dive into the academic research. um, And I found that there had been a lot of work in both the UK and the US in the late eighties actually in early 90s in this, a lot of studies, and it stopped very abruptly. And I found out the reason it stopped was because that word political made people so uncomfortable Crazy. that it got it got repackaged as the influence industry. So all those books about like influence without authority and what are your influencing skills, that all came about because business school professors couldn't sell this and make any money. So it became repackaged as influence. But Crazy. It's, all the it's the same stuff. That was a surprise. That's wild. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, The other surprise came from my team and how hard they pushed on me to insist that I had to find the positive behaviors so we could teach it. So for example, I couldn't say, don't throw someone under the bus. I mean, you shouldn't throw someone under the bus. Okay. But you don't, you know, you don't train or consult in an organization and say, don't throw someone under the bus. So, you know, how do you translate that into a positive behavior and actually there was a third surprise that was really the most challenging i pushed back on the team very hard that one of the four pillars so there's four pillars where these behaviors sit was reading the chessboard you had to have it 
you had to. And they were like, okay, but these behaviors also have to be observable. How do you know when someone's reading the chessboard? Ah. And when you think it's about- It's so ethereal, how, but I mean, it's critical, but like, how do you quantify that? Well, exactly. And, and you know, I don't know if you saw that Netflix series that was a early lockdown hit, you know, The Queen's Gambit, mm -hmm. but she would actually visualize the chessboard on the ceiling. That's how she could project mm -hmm. how to play the game. And so that's a real critical skill. So I had to think really hard. I had to work really hard in breaking down, how do you know that someone has read the chessboard mm -hmm. instead of perhaps is reading the chessboard? Do they collect information? Are they always quoting the outside industry? Do they seem to already know when you tell them something's happened that it's happened? Right. You know. So you can see the symptoms almost post-reading. Because I can't tell you if you're reading the chessboard right now. How would I know what's in your brain? So, you know, sharpening my own powers of observation for these yeah. things, that was really fun, but it was hard work. I bet that's hard. I read this interesting book and it was talking about um, all these different cultures and how sort of cultures are different from country to country. And, you know, in Japan, what they call what you, what we're referring to here is they call it, they refer to it as like reading the air. And it mm. becomes increasingly important where you know, um, the external words don't actually match the internal views of things. And in some cultures, and again, I, I really love the book because it was able to draw these distinctions between sort of, you know, country cultures that are very different and so forth. But like every, con every company has its own culture and its own, you know, its own position on these different, uh, on these different spectra that make up a culture and, and, and so forth. So there are different degrees of being able to read and read the air and a different like level of importance of having that ability to read the chessboard depending on the culture that you're in. Was that when cultures collide? Is that the book? Um, it was not that book. Uh, I'll have to send it to you after. I forget oh, the title I of it, it right now. Yeah. Thanks, because when cultures collide is similar and it's really fascinating. I actually first got into this work because I was negotiating overseas in both Egypt and Taiwan um, and the way those negotiations unfolded was so different that I was fascinated about how different cultures communicate on business on the same thing. Yeah, my friend used to set. Uh, he used to set, he used to work in the uh, the auto um, the auto parts industry in the uh, in the late '80s, and he was just he learned he was he just would always tell me the story about um, he learned very quickly that like when he would go to Japan and they would just say okay okay. They didn't mean didn't mean you had the deal per se. You know what I'm saying? Right. You'll find out when you when when you have the deal. Whereas in other in other countries, they wouldn't even give you any sort of positive assent of anything if you weren't getting close at uh, to to getting that deal. It's really interesting. It is so interesting. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, uh, I want to be conscious of time because I feel like we could probably keep going here for a while. But this was uh, a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on. And um, people, where should people hop uh, to find you? Well, absolutely. Just come find me on LinkedIn. You know, I really think that's the best place. And I'll be happy if we connect to put you on my newsletter and send you some resources if you want them or not. Um, that's really the best place. You can also find me on getpoliticaliq.com or nancyhalpern.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time. Thank you, Nancy.